Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and I'm, of course, joined by everyone's favorite Snowpiercer, Michael Kester. It's too easy. That's me. I'm, I'm the title character of the movie. Snowpiercer is going to be the first movie. I just had to move it to the back for, I would say, comedic purposes, but I'm not even really sure I do any of that here. Yeah. <laughs> Send us a message if anything I said I've said has ever been funny. That's important. Well, let, right? I mean, I think I want to know if the message is anything you've ever said is funny and was supposed to be funny because oh, well, it's I sort already, of like no. the overlap is what I'm interested in. No, I oh, the other know movie the is the favorite. <laughs> the other movie is the favorite. <laughs> uh, a film directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and uh, Snowpiercer directed by Bong Joon Ho. I'm just gonna. I want to billboard those names because we are incapable of not talking about them. So I just want to make sure that, that we do also billboard the names with the movies. Um, this is one of those rare double features where I'm not entirely sure if this was your idea or my idea. Right. I mean, I don't think, I think it's, it's one of those double features where, well, first of all, I know whose idea it was because I have a better memory than you. Um, <laughs> but again, no disputes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but also it feels like sort of a double feature that always was, and uh, you you just sort of plucked it from the ether and placed it on our show. Oh, good, I did this. Mm-hmm. This was this was yours. So earlier when I was coming up with Snowpiercer and the favorite, yeah, a great double feature <laughs> that I take full credit for, uh, because of how good it is mostly. Um, thematically, we're, well, here's what I'm going to now tell you that I would have assumed was your theme because I thought okay. that you created the double feature, but this is what Great. I'm... This is interesting. I, yeah, this, this is, is a very a fascinating this is a, exercise. This is a very strange backwards way to just tell you what I was thinking when I put two movies together. But, you know, you look at Snowpiercer and The Favorite, and there's, these are movies that both talk about class and power. Mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. very different ways. With The Favorite, I think, you know, obviously it's more subtle if it talks about really class at all. I think that's kind of a, a secondary theme that is just drawn out by the conversation it wants to have about power. And then Snowpiercer, class is basically like the one-word log line. Sure. But uh, they're both done by Arthur Directors, who have very, very strong visions. The movies come out and they're very much, you know, they almost would ring weird in a kind of list about, you know, movies that are about class. Sure. Because they are so distinct. I would also add that they do, in fact, ring weird in the overall catalogs of their respective directors. Mm -hmm. If you look at the whole catalog of Bong Joon-ho, Snowpiercer sort of stands out for a few very obvious reasons. And then, uh, and the same with Yorgos Lanthimos, though his back catalog's a lot shorter, but a lot weirder. So I feel like it basically measures up to about equal. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get too far into this, because I'm already, I'm chomping at the bit already. I could feel that from you too. It's patreon.com forward slash double feature. This is 
the website, the page of the website that has allowed us to get this far in this year of Double Feature. Right. It's where you can go support the show and really join up, send us messages, contribute um, your own thoughts to how the show's going, the kind of trajectory you'd like us to take. Uh, you know, sit on the board of Double Feature and really help us figure out where to go next. I think we're finding that you know, kind of straying off the beaten path is uh, is really working out for the show, covering a lot of stuff that either people, you know, either people haven't heard of in the first place, or the things that like these were pretty big fucking movies, right? But now they're pretty big, decade old movies, or you know, a, a handful of years, at least half a decade. I guess the favorite's a little more recent. The point is they didn't come out yesterday. Yeah. And with the ever dwindling attention span of the internet and the collective of people who talk about movies, if you just saw the favorite, you'd sort of be like, hey guys, why is nobody talking about this movie? Because you you missed the narrow window. I almost said missed the train. You missed the <laughs> narrow train. Snowpiercer, now there's a TV show. So you can talk about the movie right. again. Maybe people know. Three seasons. With David Diggs, can we just do like a random David Diggs? Like, of course, of course, we, we can. D- David Diggs is in it. Hashtag, you've hashtagged. <laughs> All right, so patreon.com forward slash double feature. Help us figure out where the fuck we're going next. I want to keep this show pretty accessible too. Great. But uh, I'm not afraid to dive into the weird stuff. Awesome. I just thought that it'd be cool to have some movies that kind of like wear their weirdness and their themes on their sleeve and uh, and really just chew on the stuff that they're that they're trying to bring up. Snowpiercer especially. This is a movie that's basically like, yo, here's what I want you to talk about when this is done. Sure. And I think there's almost a resistance to like have the conversation it wants to have because it's so deliberately trying to do it. You know what I mean? I am intentionally... Um, so you tell me, before we get into Snowpiercer, there's this thing. Are you familiar with Wonka Piercer? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I've heard some rumblings, yeah. Okay, so I do want to bring up Wonka Piercer because it is vividly compelling. Do you want to do that at the end of the Snowpiercer segment or at the end of the show? <laughs> um, I, you know, I feel like by the time we hit the end of the show, we realize that our, our parking meters are up and we have to dash every time. Yeah, okay, cool. So, yeah, so I'll try and cram it in at the end of the Snowpiercer segment, but in the interest of not immediately ignoring <laughs> the conversation that Snowpiercer wants to have, let's first discuss Snowpiercer. Look, I'm making a note. Wonka Piercer. This isn't like everything else we say we're going to talk about and that don't get to. This is, this is what's right. actually going to happen. All right, so if I had a logline Snowpiercer... Uh, you know, there's a lot of these like really funny over the top kind of news clip segments that open up the movie. It basically says, Hey, look, global warming was getting really bad. So we made the earth a frozen hellscape. And then we figured out that wasn't inhabitable and only the people on this train survived. And so the train is, as far as we know in this world, the train's basically like everybody who's out there. Right. Sure. And when we get on the train, it's sort of divided up by class, right? We have the tail mm-hmm. section, we have the head of the train, and people from the tail end have decided they're not going to fucking take it anymore. Right. They are making their way to the engine. Right. 
That's our setup, yeah. I mean, it's funny because not only is that the setup, but it feels like, I mean, the 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 plot. No matter how you boil it down, you know, you mentioned earlier that you can just say it's about class, or you can do this log line that you just did, or we can have a deeper conversation. And and I know you said you want to keep this accessible, but for anybody who hasn't seen Snowpiercer. I assure you that somehow, despite the plain face and obvious themes, this film does not feel like a thematic sledgehammer to your skull. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know if we're going to be able to un- to understand or unpack why somehow a movie that is so plain faced metaphorical doesn't feel like it's just beating you over the head with the idea of class warfare and capitalism but somehow it doesn't and you have to watch the movie to really get your head around how it doesn't but yeah you're right it's basically it's literally the 99th percentile rising up against the uh you know probably like the 60 percent and up i would Uh. say the one percent but it's like the 60 percent and up uh and and it all sort of it's funny because so one of the main things that that sort of promotes this upright, you know, people die. There's always like this catalytic people are dying or whatever. But also we learn really early on that like they have to eat bugs or something like that's mm. bad, mm-hmm. um, which is they think it's gross. But um, I, I mean, first of all, there's that other movie where it's like way worse than bugs. And also, I think I think you maybe I don't know. Are you in agreement that on a long enough timeline, even if if there is no snow to be pierced, we will likely have to resort to eating bugs? I mean, uh, plants are you can grow them in your house, you know. Yeah, but they have like so little protein. There is a funny thing. Well, listen, you can't have a conversation with a vegan about are you getting your protein because that's I just like trying to. <laughs> just want to know if you need bugs. Well, if you're asking me to Without speak on Joe matters Rogan of dangling <laughs> ten grand in front of you. Oh my god! Um, and now time for a Joe Rogan ad. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, here's what's kind of funny about Snowpiercer is it builds this very deliberate world where it's kind of like it wants to have a conversation about the structure of society. Mm -hmm. And it it uses a lot of very specific events to do that. Mm -hmm. But those events, even in the less than a decade since Snowpiercer has come out, have kind of changed. Right. And maybe, maybe not the global warming kind of thing like let's put that to the side obviously that's just like a, a even worsening problem it starts to become the absurdity becomes we're going to wind up on a train somehow and that's right you know as if that's what's going to fix it yeah, so that's the, the absurdity the imagination. Is, that su- is that we'll be able to come together and build a train that's the that's the real suspension of right. <laughs> right yeah that goes all around the world it's like <laughs> that sounds that sounds like one of those wonderful things that we will just never have for no reason right. imagine right. for a second tribute to the world of this film right that you get on a train and go everywhere in the world it it would just this is a truly amazing idea yeah i mean the the idea is elon musk built a train from the united states to europe i'm no longer interested you've (laughs) lost all my interest so an idea like eating bugs has even like kind of come more into vogue over the last decade to where now when when he rips open the vault and oh my god can you believe it's little CGI bugs it sort of doesn't have the impact that maybe it would have 
you know, 10 right. years ago. And I always found the tableaus in Snowpiercer to be kind of funny because we, we kind of like, we get to a moment of like baby cannibalism. Yeah. And then we try to one-up that with, you know, like basically child labor. And I just, I always sort of feel like, I'm sorry, what, do you remember the baby cannibalism though? Or we, can, we, <laughs> can we go back to that for a second? You know, he's kind of giving this this real, real heavy monologue for this. Chris Evans, who is just, uh, every time I watch this, like I always start the movie sort of going like, oh, Chris Evans is a pretty normal mm-hmm. actor for this very strange movie. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as the cars get more and more fucked up, he becomes like, see normal movie guy navigate a bizarre world. Right, He's almost right. like the character right. of guy who's in Hollywood movie. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, it's never are you more, never are you more aware of how normal of a guy Chris Evans is uh, than when he's opposite Tilda Swinton in this movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Earth's greatest actor still alive <laughs> in the train. She's made it through the apocalypse. Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton, not Earth's greatest actor because of her range or because I emote with her character, but because she is literally always interesting, bar none. Right. I mean, the fucking stuff with the shoe, I just don't. She's almost high camp in this. That first monologue she gives is... It's no. crazy just watching her do it. It's it's there's there's this like level as you move toward the front of the train as so so this is another thing that I think is actually really there there's something to unpack about this and I mm. want to have this conversation. So the tailies of the train who are the the poor folks who are, you know they have drug problems, they're like missing their body parts, et cetera, et cetera. Chris Evans folk, the poor people who mm-hmm. move their way up to the front of the train. There's definitely an aspect to the movie where where those people are probably like very identifiable to you and I who are like not quite to that point, barely mm-hmm. in the overall capitalistic pyramid, but they they feel like people I can get my head around. And what's amazing is as you move forward in the train, uh, it's sort of like this um, this really cool like parabola where toward, as you get to the middle of the train, uh, which is like as you move upward in class, the cars just become more and more alien. Uh-huh. You just you just start going like, why the fuck are they this way? Why are they dressing like this? Why is a whole car an aquarium? What is going, you know? And it's, it's so, it just makes me think of like if Metropolitan were a sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Where it's, it's like, it's like you're watching an alien race and the only thing, you know, it's like a sci-fi, it's like a fucking Twilight Zone episode. It's like, it's not an alien race. They just have more money than you. Bum, bum, <laughs> bum. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, that's, I think is one of the most effective things that the movie does is, is no matter what financial walk of life the viewer is even the wealthiest person in the theater is still going to identify better with Chris Evans than anyone on the train 
until he gets to the front of the train, in which case I find myself not entirely disagreeing with oh, that totally, other guy. Totally. Isn't that crazy? Well, and we're told Yeah, and that's what I'm saying about the, the parabola. It, it's, yeah. it's wacky until it crests, and then you get to the absolute top where it basically feels the same as the bot. It's the Dr. Manhattan of it all, where <laughs> he's just sitting on another planet like, I also don't care. The people <laughs> down there don't care. I also don't care. It turns out if you know everything or nothing, it's the same vibe. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I think we're told, um, we are told early on, just cut his tongue out. Just don't listen to anything he's saying. Yeah. And of course, as an audience member, when I hear that, I'm like, I'm not going to be fucking swayed by this guy. Let's go get him. And then he starts talking and he's basically like, look, this is the whole planet now. We have to like maintain balance and we're literally on a train which itself is also literally maintaining balance. Like we just don't have any wiggle room for error. And I found myself just being like, oh yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Well, okay, I guess kill everyone on the, tra- it's wild. the train. Back to that plan. It's wild to think about because in, in as a thought experiment goes, right? Like you, Whenever you and I are are confronted, I, I say you and I, I know myself, I assume you because I feel like this is something we align on. Whenever you're confronted with some sort of like economic crisis, right? Mm-hmm. It's really difficult for me as uh, whatever type of like poor contrarian I am to just like not eventually just if if I'm if I'm backed into a corner, I'm eventually just going to resort to the economy is a construct, money is paper. Uh, this is all stuff that we have brought on ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't we just? Why can't we just all agree not to work? And then uh, why can't life be about enjoyment? Why does it have to be about productivity? Yada. You know, I, that will eventually become my argument. But when you put it on the Snowpiercer, that argument doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I can't just be like it's a construct because the construct is literally what is supporting life. The construct is a fucking train. And you can't go, well, what if we just dismantle the construct? Because the very real answer is everyone fucking dies. Yeah, well, I do think they've adapted pretty well, too. That's part of the world building of the train is like, you know, it's interesting. You see you see one guy drawing portraits, right? Mm-hmm. Who is a great character actor, by the way. He's drawing portraits. You know, they don't, they must not have photography. You know, they talk about all these parts that have gone by the wayside. Watching it this time... Oh, and the bartering too, right? Like they don't have money. It's kind of funny for these movies that people and, you know, after Parasite came out too, they're always kind of lumping them in a conversation about capitalism. And this is a movie that if it's about capitalism, it doesn't even feature fucking money in it, which is kind of an abstract, cool idea. Mm -hmm. But they they have adjusted to not even having a monetary system. They have found a way to continue being authoritarians without bullets. They've found a way to continue eating, you know, without food. And I think that there could just as easily be an argument that, you know, if we wanted to change the rules, start with the change instead of starting with how are we going to pay for it? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This sort of, mm-hmm. this is something we saw during COVID, right? All of, the, all of these things that it was like, oh, earth could never, society will never work if say, people don't have to go in the office and have someone watching over their shoulder. Right. And then once it's like, oh, uh, we decided we don't give a fuck about that anymore. We're, right. we're just not going to do that. 
Yeah. Oh, How could a that. restaurant Everything survive is... if people don't eat there? Everyone will just start <laughs> cooking at home. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just funny the way that all of these things. I mean, this is not a new observation. I feel like everybody realized this during the pandemic. But all of this stuff we kind of suspected was bullshit. It turned out we could just flip a switch on this stuff. It would not. If the will is really there, you just do the thing you want to do. If the country wanted to eliminate student debt, just fucking eliminate it. What's going to happen? All the banks are going to close. The world's going to light itself on fire. I mean, you know, just start with the thing you want to do and work top down. Right. Yeah, like if you want the Ukraine to be part of the USSR. So we got to, I'm sorry, we have to save that for the to be or not to be show. I don't know that we can. <laughs> um, all this in a movie where uh, you can still slip on a fish. This is the kind of, you know, this is the sort of w- world It is world still building. a Bong Joon-ho movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's still, it's still, um, there is still sort of an, uh, a, a surrealist, like not of this world element to the movie, despite the fact, you know, I mean, it's a sci-fi movie, but I feel like even a movie like Parasite of his, like feels slightly disconnected from the planet that we're on. It's interpretive. You know, I love that, that more abstract look at it because this movie has a very, very, uh, you know, moving car to car, like little terrariums, just the kind of visual element of the movie, or I guess really the hook. Mm-hmm. You know, the our own world has changed so much since this came out. I remember when this movie first debuted, and I was kind of like, all right, Snowpiercer, that's fine. And then you look at how much the film landscape has changed, and there's just no movies like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And this becomes... You know, I watched it now for the show and it's like this amazing rare film, like a special treat we don't get. Yeah. Where you can just play out this thought experiment in such a big way with these like huge performances. And it gets your mind working on a lot of these things where it's about so much more than just, oh, you know, isn't capitalism fucked up? Mm -hmm. We do get to play out some of these. I mean, that's why I love the Ed Harris bit at the end, because we do kind of get to think about, well, what are the alternatives? And and can we just like blow a fucking hole in the side of the train and try something else? These are things that I love about the Bong Joon-ho movies is, you know, it is a a real working class film that isn't just about holding up the working class. It's about seeing that the entire system is fucked up. Like right, somebody it's about who's the really systematic oppression. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah, it just a, it's such a big picture view of like what the fuck are we doing here, and um, and I love it for that. You want to talk about this Wonka Piercer thing? Yeah, and I just feel like it's really cool. So I, I definitely. So before I do this, I just want to let you know that that the internet will always be better and smarter than me. So go ahead and of your own volition, if this seems interesting to you, please look up Wonka Piercer. But there is a theory, and it's really cool. One of my two favorite like film universe theories that uh, Snowpiercer, the train was actually created by uh, Willy Wonka. And that, um, what's his name? I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, Ed Harris's character. Mm-hmm. Wait, I want to say Waylon, but I'm thinking of Alien. Right. Um, He's got a W name though, right? Yeah. I'll look it so, up. So, well, so the theory is that he is actually Charlie from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And he has, he has 
created this this train that is a series of increasingly difficult rooms to try and, much like his previous mentor, Willy Wonka, weed out somebody to take his place. And there's a bunch of cute little pieces of evidence. There's a theory that um, that his like his his henchman guy was actually Mike TV, the because Mike TV was really good with guns. Um, but it all it's all sort of predicated on this one idea that I think is really interesting, which is that um, the train was not ever supposed to be operated by children. You know, there's that you're talking about child labor, mm-hmm. and the theory is not that that was supposed to be children. The theory is that the Oompa Loompas went extinct, <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, they were also small enough. The the there's a there's a video on the internet about it, and it's really fucking fun to imagine. Um, Snowpiercer as a uh, as a sequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I choose uh, to reject that because I don't like to put two things together. Because then you start finding. <laughs> wow, I don't like to put wow, two movies a, next to each other because there. I feel like you start finding things that like they don't. Anyway, the next movie today <laughs> is the favorite. <laughs> you see, if I was quick on my toes, I would have a, a cinematic universe for the favorite, but I don't. I just think it's deliciously dirty and I love it. Yeah. All right, so what's the favorite about? What's the favorite really about? I think this is a... I would want to use like a power struggle somewhere in a log line. We have Queen Anne. Queen Anne is hooking up with Lady Sarah and then, you know, our peasant, our tail section, Abigail shows up and completely fucks up the mix. We get this... um, I'll get some new order points here. We get a bizarre love triangle. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's what I love about the favorite is, you know, there's a lot going on in this movie. There's the look of it. There's the time and the place and the Yorgos. But really, it's like the the web of these three characters and the interactions that totally fucking does it for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think maybe we try to tackle a couple themes in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Okay, so like you see the favorite. Do you agree with my my sort of like overall log line? What do you think this movie's about? No, I, I think I think that's pretty much. Um, I think I think there's sort of one aspect of it that you're missing, mm. which is that while Queen Anne is you know Queen Anne, her character is is absolutely uh, just a a powerful figurehead with no idea of how to to use her influence. Period. Or maybe even interest, right. right? Yeah. So she's she's sort of she's sort of like a like a dummy figurehead, which uh, I think is important one for the character, but two because it adds this element to this this power dynamic where, um, you know, Sarah would say that you know there was a status quo, everything was fine until this peasant girl showed up, right? Uh huh. But us as outsiders just see her, you know garnering the influence of the queen for her own ends and 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 sort of pointing the queen in the direction she wants. Basically, it's a flawed system to begin with, right? And I think that is Are you talking about the monarchy or BDSM? What oh, the the former. Oh, okay. Um yeah. So <laughs> it it's a flawed system to begin with in that the queen is all, you know, the queen is already being manipulated, mm. right? And and so there is England being manipulated essentially by this one really hot woman. And so 
when this other girl comes in and sort of flips this uh, dynamic on its head, the movie sort of it's it's showing you the movie itself is it. it I don't want to say it struggles because it sounds like it's a failing, but the movie is showing you a struggle in that. Nothing was ever actually balanced, but now the balance is shifting, but it's still an imbalanced redistribution yeah. of the influence. Yeah. There's just, it's, it's, you know, it's when you fill up a glass up to the point where the surface tension is just over the rim of the glass, mm-hmm. and then you try to pour it into another glass, you're going to spill shit everywhere. Yeah. And this movie is just about all of the shit spilling while two people are trying to get the most water in their glass. Uh, when in reality it was very precarious to begin with and probably shouldn't have been allowed to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, it is about equilibrium. You know, I think that's a huge theme of the movie. You have this war with France that's going on and there's kind of this this um, very, the political balance that uh, they're, they're trying to take care of and really not even the queen, but like you said, I mean, basically every other force is trying to have the influence to maintain some balance and handle the war. But the, um, you know, I, I might as well just cut straight through all the dressings here. Like, you look at the ending, you look at the plot of the movie, once Abigail has, you know, spoilers in the show, but once Abigail has kind of like won the movie, you know, mm-hmm. things go to hell without Sarah. There is a there's kind of a game that's going on throughout the film and their relationship. I, at, at the very least, Abigail's relationship with Anne, it needs Sarah to, to maintain some kind of like fucking balance. I think it does. I mean, that's my read of it. I don't think that necessarily has to be true, but we certainly see, see it like, I think if Sarah's there in the end, then it doesn't, wind up where it does, you know, in this, mm-hmm. in this amazing final scene, which is like, uh, the sexuality is my favorite part of this movie. It basically ends on a scene where it's shot like she's giving the queen head. Right. And it's just this, this sort of, the longer it plays out, the nastier it is. And then there's sort of like a, uh, a triple exposure sort of effect going on where rabbits are showing mm-hmm. up. It's just really a fucking weird ending, but it feels like some, you know, the way people talk about like fucking brown bunny or something, you know, just this, mm-hmm. this sort of like nasty, not allowed to do it kind of look, you know, her gesture. I should point out if you haven't seen this movie, like she's not giving the queen head. That's not actually what's happening in that scene. Um, I think she's washing her feet, right? Or her legs. She's mm-hmm. rubbing her uh, rubbing her legs. Yeah. You know, so this is something we've seen before in the movie and obviously it looks different at different points. But at this point, it looks like a sort of stagnant defeat. It looks like, it looks like welcome to the rest of your fucking life. And it's because of Sarah's absence. Right. I do want to go back actually to the, the log line piece to... Uh, to kind of talk about the actors because I think the way that these, the way the three actors perform the characters is something that doesn't really wind up in the summary of the film. But as soon as you started talking about the queen. So, yes. And <laughs> I I want to also, no, I think this is great. I just also want to point out uh, that, the, that I think that for the log line mm-hmm. being as it is, 
we also forgot to just like sort of mention it's a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. And so mm-hmm. that's like also part of the log line because you have to understand that aspect of it. It's funny to talk about this as a Yorgos movie because it's like for a Yorgos movie, it's pretty normal. Yeah. But a normal Yorgos movie is still like the fucking weirdest, you know, like especially in this time period, you just don't really have a period piece thing like this. Sure. It's shot weird. It is, you know, the the amount of insane wide angle and fisheye shots in this movie the like leaning into the haziness of the lens that you know razor thin sort of uh open aperture kind of look it's just very it almost seems like you know when okay so like 3 you see a movie in 3D or um you know like spatial audio or some technology comes along and suddenly you can see something like you've never seen it before mm-hmm. experience it's it's uh you know the world in 4K for the first time and you sort of go oh wow i've never really been able to explore the world like this when i first saw this movie the fucking wides in this movie make me feel like I'm getting some 3D virtual tour of like yield and yeah. day. <laughs> like yeah. I have access I mean, to some new technology or something I've never had before. Well, I think that the, I think that to me the the way that I would put it is it feels like it feels like there's a movie going on, but also we are randomly given a look behind the scenes of these characters yeah. as real people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's like, and, and not to say that like they break character or that the performances change, but that like the, there's so much, there's so much of this manufactured pomp that goes into, uh, especially period dramas, especially mm-hmm. in American cinema. Anytime there's some period movie, it's always, hyper elegant you're Downton Abbey's and everybody is very prim and proper and that's like what pe- it's a very Jane Austen you know it's what people want to see they want to see this yeah, yeah. pristinely put together character with a smudge on her face to let you know that she's a peasant girl and yeah. the favorite with the wide angles is basically like look how fucking bizarre this is <laughs> yeah. especially in yeah. these rooms right you see these because it's it's shot in 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 very very period uh, I don't want to say period accurate because I'm fucking dumb, but like what appears to be very period representative um, sets and you never see them ugly. Yeah. You never yeah. see them ugly. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, I've been to some, I've been to like Versailles I, in real life. And that's one of the things I remember so much about like a palace like that is you like walk into a room and it's like, there's like a plaque and it's like the piano room and you're like, Ooh, the piano room. And you walk in and it's a giant fucking room with one piano in the middle. And you're like, that's what did you ever do with this? It's not called. Yeah. It's not called the piano room because, Oh, this is where we go to entertain with P it's because it's, the literally only thing in the room is a fucking piano. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, well, you know, being in um, being in Britain and seeing places like this, or like the Met, even you, you just go somewhere like the Met, and I, it, the sense you get in the room, I mean, it doesn't look like they do in movies. It right. looks like they do in The Favorite. It it just yeah. looks huge and weird, and yeah. like there's an infinite amount of space, and you're just trying to imagine how many fucking people. It's a ballroom. Every room is a fucking ballroom. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. 
All right, so back to these goddamn actors, Michael. <laughs> this is what happens in a Yorgos movie. You're, uh, you're looking around and you get distracted by things. But just to get a sense of, of what's happening in the plot, the part that isn't stated that I think is the most important is, you know, when you look at the queen, the way that Olivia Coleman plays the queen you know, she starts off very, uh, she starts off like spoiled, very gleeful, very, she's very childlike. Mm-hmm. She just kind of wants like to play. She wants, mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say like carnal pleasure, but that seems to even be not really, ca- it is playfulness. Mm-hmm. She wants to fuck about and have <laughs> have a good time, but she's also ill and as the movie goes on, you know, especially in uh, in the end of the movie, there's this sad sort of like confusion and frustration really as she gets sick. This kind of like lashing out, yelling at people. And you do you do get these reminders that she is the ultimate authority if she got invested in, you know, if she had the whim, which is what's so crazy and dangerous, you know, about monarchies somebody can kind of go mad and we hear these stories over and over about this. Mm-hmm. But Olivia Coleman is just so fucking good. I just saw her in The Lost Daughter and it's just crazy just watching her. It's amazing. This movie was the beginning of, you know, pardon the, pardon the pun, but it was the beginning of the reign of Olivia Coleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I honestly, I mean, I don't, I don't actually know the statistics, but like pretty much everything she's been in since this or every year or some shit. There's something about how she's been like nominated for best actress, like every year since the favorite and like wins every time it's like different than the other ones where it's like, Oh, Meryl Streep. She's got like 800 Oscars. Uh, she must be really good, but it's something like Olivia Coleman gets nominated and wins every time. It's like, Oh, it's that might as well just change the award to being Olivia Coleman. And it's weird because I, I remember her from like, so I remember her from, um, extras oh yeah yeah um and it was like i remembered her from extras and then suddenly the the woman from extras is in the favorite (laughs) and uh i was like that's weird sure and and now it's like it's like you know if it's olivia coleman it must be good like i'm watching the mitchells versus the machines like ecstatic that the voice of the iphone is olivia (laughs) coleman and, you know, not to like out champion the other characters too, because I think, again, the portrayals, Emma Stone's character, the movie could go so many different ways if she played this differently. Mm-hmm. But she's got this, she has this devilish quality to her, but she's also got this kind of frailty of, you know, it's almost like just dared to underestimate her. And I go back and forth, even knowing how the movie plays out, I go back and forth in these scenes of kind of catching myself like underestimating her and sort of going, you know, has she gotten in over her head? Does she have the ability to... Rachel Weisz, her character, we know that she holds the power when we get there. We know that she's making plays for that. We, When we see her holding the gun, it's dangerous. When we see Emma Stone holding the gun, it's like, can she shoot a little better than she's leading on, you know? Right. And I think managing to, to 
kind of toe that line the entire time or just like stay on that razor's edge is what creates the tension of the film. I mean, the whole movie is about not saying what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And that 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 goes all the way down to the performances. I mean, it goes down to the writing, right? The dialogue is this like obnoxiously pedantic. Nobody actually asks for what they want. Everybody just sort of use statecraft and courtesanship to to allude to the things you want, with the exception of um, uh, uh, Nicholas Hoff's character, who just will say exactly what he wants, and then everybody's like, "Shut the fuck up, dude! You're an asshole." I will say, except for the smut, which is funny, sure. right? Because that's the thing in society that we're sort of like, oh, that's the one thing you can't be direct about. Right. And so it's, it's, that's where I really see that bizarro Yorgos world is the way people talk so frankly in, especially in a society and time where we assume everything is so, you know, it's right. so don't talk about it. It's so proper. So to hear her go, I like her tongue inside me, it's just kind of like, oh, right, okay, we're that frank. But again, that feels the most like your ghost to me. That just uh-huh. feels like a Colin Farrell line from The Lobster. Yeah. When he's like, why do you like her? I like her tongue inside me. And we're just supposed uh-huh. to be like, oh, yeah, that's just normal conversation <laughs> at lunch. And what if it could be, Michael? And what if it could be? <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, their motivations are all different in the way they play these characters, too. Like, Rachel has that cold power bit and that um, that constant, like, eye on the prize. And I wonder about Emma Stone's character. She has that, that moment where she kind of goes, like, it's over, I've won, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this reminder that, you know, her motivation might just be to keep out of you know, she's not looking for like ultimate power. She's kind of more looking for stability. Right. And, you know, it's it's that thing that people say about uh, the prey outrunning the predator because one is simply hunting for dinner and the other is fighting for its life. Sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder watching it, if that is, maybe that's part of what gives Abigail the upper hand is this burning desire to not go back to that life. Right. Can I ask you one really stupid thing about this movie? Yeah. Because you're the only person I can ask this to. I watch this movie and I am always with Emma Stone's character. But Uh I know you are a huge Rachel Weisz fan. Yeah. So I wonder if that plays out the same. Like, are you rooting for somebody in this movie? Yeah, but I'm also rooting for I'm also rooting for Emma Stone's character. Yeah. One because I I love a villain, so I'm super comfortable loving Rachel Weiss and having her be the bad guy. One, I yeah, think that yeah. that's great. Um, but two, sort of to go back to the very beginning of this conversation, I am always anti-status quo. So so I just want to see I want to see whatever whatever system is in place be dismantled uh and just watch it burn. I just want to see that happen. So I, I'm definitely down for Emma Stone. Emma Stone could just be, I mean, Emma Stone could be a radioactive spider and I would just be rooting for, <laughs> right, for I the spider. <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah, it is. I do think the movie puts us in a position where we kind of root for one more because of that disruption. But I didn't know yeah. if that's, 
so specific to my watching it or not. I think that the that the that the movie sets up that this particular monarchy is pretty gross, and I think yeah. you wanna you wanna see it you wanna see it fall apart. All right, we have a website. It's doublefeature.fm forward slash no. <laughs> it's patreon.com forward slash double feature. Go on there, sign up, join the show, and uh, tell us if you like the favorite and if you, what other weird societal commentaries you want to see on double feature. I want to thank Henrik Dinter, the Abbot of Reason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John for being executive producers of the show. Thank you guys. Because of you, uh, we get to continue this year's journey because uh, that's what's happening next week. Um, we are doing more. The hits keep rolling with the exploitation and the French extreme. Do you consider next week's movie a French extreme movie? Oh, hell yeah. But, you okay. know, it's um, it's definitely getting more into that horror that everybody's kind of been waiting for. Right. The, that's kind of what I was divide wondering. divide yeah. over into the the real tension and the real fucked up stuff. So right. yeah, I did the say high we, tension. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, Shaitan next week is uh, well, we'll we'll talk about it when it happens. It's a bit of a fucked movie. Yeah. What is Daughter of the Sun? Daughter of the Sun. So first of all, you'll be happy to know that uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis is involved. Oh, great! It's like a it's like a beyond nudie cutie movie. Uh, where back in the day you weren't allowed to like put boobs on uh, on camera unless it was like educational, and the only way to do that um, without it being an educational movie is you were allowed to film at nudist colonies. So this is a movie that's basically retroactively. Oh, so we're getting away with something next time. Yeah, I mean cool. it's it's gonna be it's gonna be it's 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 a very we are going deep on our journey next week, but with much reward. I assure you. So the movies next week are Daughter of the Sun and Shaitan. Watch them. Watch more fucking film. And goodbye.